1: Phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's one 6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir.
0: Hey Noah, have you ever felt like you should be a spokesperson for some sort of product that you happen to use very often?
1: Oh my gosh, dude! Every day of my life, I I, I get really passionate about the stuff I use. Why? What What did you run into?
0: Well, it, it's not so much a passion, but um, you know, some people like a cold beer when they're done working outside or yeah. whatever. I I like an ice cold Pepsi, and so the joke around my house is that the the backyard, or in this case, my porch, is brought to us by Pepsi because <laughs> it's essentially what's fueling the work. <laughs>
1: The more Pepsi that's around, the more incentivized Steve is to go out there to do work?
0: Pretty much, yeah. I it's it, You know what? I took it from a principle that I read a long time ago from Jordan Peterson that basically was like when, when you're trying to battle uh, motivation – what you do is you find a way to reward yourself. And even if it's silly, you give yourself that reward. And so it's one of those things where it's like, you know what? If I work hard and I get a really good sweat on, I get two Pepsis. Like.
1: So, OK, this is an important question. So I I had a guy, he worked on our install team and he had a, a, like we just we had very different working styles. I'll leave it at that. But so we would go into a place and like we were installing, we were doing a, a sports like hair salon thing and so we had to put all these tvs up in front of all the places and mount them and he would we'd get up there and he'd like drill the holes for the tv mount and he put it in and then as i'm sitting there trying to get the tv up he's down there with a broom like sweeping all this stuff up and about the third time in i'm like dude could we maybe wait until all of it is done like let's get let's make all the messes then let's go clean up and then let's go sit down have a beer and a pizza and, and call it a night and whatever and He's like, no, 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 I, just, I prefer to do it as I go along. And then he's also one of those people that like every 45 minutes to an hour, you want it to take a break and sit down for 15 minutes and relax. And, ref- and I'm like, I want to work, 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 work. And then once I'm done, then I'll relax. So where do you fall on that spectrum?
0: Oh, I'm I'm totally a worker. Um, <sighs> Thank you. I will like uh, Monday, I believe. So I, I took the day off on Monday and I worked from noon right through to nine o'clock i i didn't even think about dinner because like especially when i'm doing something that i i somewhat enjoy i'm not thinking about unless i'm really starving i'm not thinking about it until i've actually come to a complete stop right right? if 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 it's a task where i'm getting distracted once in a while and you have 30 seconds here or there to think about it then maybe i'm i'm thinking about food but like i just i just go until i'm Tired of working. <laughs>
1: yeah, or until the project's done, you can look back and put your hands on your hips like an accomplished man and say, I did that.
0: Yeah, exactly. All
1: right. Well, I want to do something. I want to get into some feedback. We that's, that's something we can look at and say there's an accomplishment there. Let's do it. Our first email comes in from Sebastian. Sebastian says, hi, Noah and Steve. Greetings from Argentina. I'm a supporter of self-hosted and offline access to my information. I'm a loss adjuster. I do a lot of field inspections on small towns where there's internet, connect- internet connectivity is not always available. Yet, I'm reachable via phone calls, so I often need access to mails and docs. Although I use NextCloud for most of my personal business life, email is a different case. I don't know where to start. I've got servers on premise that I'd like to retrieve emails from Google and Zoho accounts to act as an intermediary. So I can use my trusty Thunderbird to get mail from my server. Then in case of Gmail or Zoho going down while I'm en route without connectivity, I'll be able to read the last email received without a decent connection, even if Gmail is still down. As a byproduct, I can get free gigs of space on each account, and I access the old mail from my servers and search them with a GUI, maybe on separate IMAP folders. Could anyone point me in the right direction? I've checked offlineimap.org for retrieving stage, but I got stuck with the serving part. P.S. I already have all of my services with WireGuard, so nothing gets unnecessarily exposed. I've listened to all your podcasts. Thanks, and a nice useful show. Sebastian. So, Steve, what would you do if you woke up in Sebastian's shoes and you're saying to yourself, self, I want to get access to all of my email, but I don't want to have to rely on an internet connection to do that. No, oh, by the way, if I'm syncing IMAP accounts, it's not really an option because syncing IMAP accounts means I have to pay for that space on the IMAP server and there are limits.
0: Hmm. Honestly, I'd probably pick up the phone and call Noah because uh, I don't bump into this use case very often. Uh, I tend to avoid email like the plague unless I absolutely <laughs> have to, because it's it's honestly, it's a terrible medium of communication. And, you know, that's not to the point of what Sebastian's talking about. Obviously, mm. mm-hmm. he needs to do it. Um, the closest I've come to something like this is using like a mail spooler, but that's for a different sort of thing like if your mail server goes down there's a backup you know through the mail spooler where they they hold your mail for a certain amount of time so that uh you don't end up sending people bounced emails but that's completely different i've never had a situation where i'm trying to aggregate and uh store from multiple different like different servers at the same time
1: Mm -hmm. so i i have not done exactly what you're talking about, but I've kind of barked up the tree. So I pay for the minimum amount of storage on on our email service that we use for AltaSpeed. And once a year, I dump my entire email box. I take everything that's in my email box. I go into Thunderbird, file, save as, save as a file, and I save copies of all of the, every email I was ever sent, and then I wipe them off of the IMAP server and restart over at zero. Every one of those dumps goes into a folder and is stored on my NAS. Then for searchability and readability and all the rest of it, because undoubtedly, and it always happens like three days after I do that, I do the dump, I sit down and I'm like, oh yeah, I got to get back to so-and-so. Where's that email? And all right, it's got dumped. So early on, I figured out I needed a easy and concise and quick way to access all of these stored emails. Again, like you, I didn't want to have to pay to store in the cloud or store on the email server. Additionally, like you, I don't always get control over what email services I'm using. So I have control over the ones that we use at Alta Speed Technologies. I have what we use here at Ask Noah's show. But very often when we're called in to do contracting, they'll say, hey, we're going to set you up a company email. And that's typically on G Suite or Office 365. I get no say in that. I still want copies of all those emails and I still want to retain all of those. And I want to, you know, for lack of a better way to say this, build a Rolodex any place I am. And so what I do, I take all those emails and I dump them into a local, it's not set up to connect to any sort of mail server. It's just a local instance of Thunderbird. And you can just drag folders full of emails in. Thunderbird will import them. And then you have the ability to search and all the rest of it. Plus you can use folders to organize. That gets you halfway there because you're still at the problem. So you could do that locally, I suppose, but you're going to have to maintain one heck of a, of a of a Thunderbird presence on on a mobile machine. And so what I've done is I will use X2Go to get into a machine that sits a VM really, but it sits at my house and that's what has all of my email. So I, can, I have every email I've ever received uh ever, ever. Uh my very first email address I found at that time it was Pop three, but I dumped all of the email out and I have been doing that ever since. So there's every email I ever have is somewhere. Um I would not want to manage that on my laptop, nor would I want to pay for the amount of time it would take to restore and backup and all the rest of it when it's on my laptop, especially because my laptop gets reloaded every so often. But if you absolutely insisted on having local access to it, you could certainly do that. So you can create a local mailbox and you could just copy from your IMAP box, which is syncing up to your server, down to your local box and store it that way. I suspect you'd get a lot of mileage doing that. Our second email comes in from DJ. DJ writes in and says, Hi guys, thanks for your nuanced answer to my technical questions about drive slot hosting with ZFS replication in episode 336. The problem is known, but easy solutions are not always straightforward. I hope to reach out to AltaSpeed soon. I'd be happy to talk with you and your team. Further to another recent discussion you had on CMRA's commercial mail receiving agents in episode 332 and 333, we note that America's Mailbox." has the content scanning services that you mentioned in Traveling Mailbox. I find the customer service at America's Mailbox to be more friendly and accommodating. I'm not sure how private most CMRAs are beyond a layer of uh, indirection. However, even with South Dakota's privacy-respecting legal frameworks, many CRMAs are typically small outfits and may not prioritize InfoSec or OpSec as much as people in our tech privacy-minded communities would prefer. All the best, DJ. So I guess my answer there is I don't do those sorts of things or those services are not interested in those services are not interesting to me because they provide a level of privacy in by which nobody knows who I am or nobody knows the content of those letters. I guess for me, the aspect of privacy comes by way of when I have to go give my address out to somebody, somebody doesn't know per se where they can exactly find me, the person. They just know where they're able to send something that I get. That's where I think the benefit of shared mailboxes, or so you you so eloquently put it, CMRAs. I think that's where it is. Steve, any thoughts on shared mailboxes, or is this just something entirely out of your wheelhouse?
0: I mean, the only thing that I get by mail is from places that don't allow me to you know, go paperless. And so yeah. I, I generally, I send outgoing mail. Like I write letters to my grandpa, like physical letters to my grandpa and stuff like that, because mm-hmm. I think there's something special about taking the time of to to write a handwritten letter as opposed to type or send an email just because it shows an extra level of care but outside of that honestly don't deal much i suppose my my avoidance of email is similar to my avoidance of regular mail it's just not a mode of communication that i engage in
1: yeah i'm kind of in the same boat with you there it seems like an outdated way to 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 communicate but there are certain services that just say like you have to do this and to a degree you know you're doing titles for vehicles or registration or something like that there isn't really a way around it and so what i like about these CMRAs, as as the emailer put it is it allows me to digitalize and bring into 2023 an outdated way of communication so that i don't have to live like that i don't have to go out to my mailbox like an animal
2: from the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT.
3: For the week of May 13th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. The Lindo's legacy lives on. Freespire 9.5 has been released. TinyCore 14 has been released. Mozilla 113 is out. Haiku, the open source re-implementation of BOS, has been added to the RISC-V ecosystem interactive landscape. And FS, a new copy-on-write file system, has been submitted for addition to the kernel. OpenVPN 2.6.4 has been released. And in other security news, the Royal Ransomware Group has ramped up operations recently and is mounting attacks against critical infrastructure and healthcare targets in particular. It has recently expanded its arsenal to target Linux and VMware ESXi environments, according to Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 division. Who noted in an analysis released on May 9th that the group has recently launched a variant of its encryptor malware built in the form of an ELF binary? And a previously undocumented and mostly undetectable variant of the Linux backdoor called BPF door has been spotted in the wild. Cybersecurity firm Deep Instinct said in a technical report published this week BPF door, first documented by Elastic Security Labs in May 2022, is a passive Linux backdoor associated with a Chinese threat actor called Red Mention. Also, a new Linux netfilter kernel flaw has been discovered, allowing unprivileged local users to escalate their privileges to root level, allowing complete control over a system. As revealed by security researchers who posted on the open-wall mailing list, a proof-of-concept exploit was created to demonstrate the exploitation of this CVE. The researcher states that this impacts multiple Linux kernel releases, including the current stable version, 6.3.1. And a new ransomware-as-a-service operation called Michael Cores has become the latest file-encrypting malware to target Linux and VMware ESXi systems as of April 2023. The development points to cybercriminal actors increasingly setting their eyes on ESXi, the cybersecurity forum CrowdStrike said in a report shared with the Hacker News. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, has added several Linux and Linux-related flaws to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. And Intel has issued a new CPU microcode updates going back to Generation 8 for new, as-of-yet-undisclosed security updates. However, there's a ray of sunshine. The Open Source Security Foundation this week announced that it has added four new members and that Microsoft and Google have pledged $5 million in funding for the new Alpha Omega project, which is an initiative aimed at improving open-source software security by identifying and patching vulnerabilities in source code. In open-source AI news, Meta has announced a new open-source generative AI model called ImageBind that links together six different modalities, images, text, audio, depth, thermal, and IMU. And the American AI company Hug Face has released Hug and Chat, an open-source language model chatbot. And lastly, the European Parliament's responsible committees voted by a large majority to protect free software in forthcoming AI regulation and that it must be part of the EU's Cyber Resilience Act. Every once in a while, I come
1: across a piece of hardware or something that catches my eye, and I think, man, this is just a really cool thing for somebody who's running Linux. And this week, it's the RODECaster 2 Pro. And I, I guess one of those things that doesn't really fit any particular style or any particular segment that I could do otherwise, which is why we started the feature segment, just to talk about th- random things that come up in in. In the day-to-day life of somebody who deals with supporting a large range of technology in Linux environments. And so if you've not seen the Roadcaster Pro 2, it's a second iteration of their broadcast system. And essentially what it is, calling it a mixer is a bit of an understatement. Calling it an audio interface is a bit of an understatement. Calling it a processor is a bit of an understatement because it's really all of those things all in one. It's a fully integrated audio production studio for podcasters, streamers, musicians, and content creators, and it works flawlessly under Linux. So what Rode has done here is they've given you four microphone inputs with high quality, what they call revolution preamps. Uh, that sound fantastic. They also give you four high-quality Noitrix combo inputs for connecting microphones and instruments, and so you can plug in a line-level input or you can plug in a microphone input. By default, you're going to get six faders on the unit, and they're assignable. So the first four, by default, come as assigned to microphones, but you can assign them to any source you like. On the back of the Rodecaster, you're going to find... The four microphone combo, so it's quarter inch TRS and and XLR inputs, and then you get four individual headphone outputs as well as a, a main out left and right, and then two audio interfaces. I'll circle back to that two audio interfaces in a second. You get all of the faders, which, again, are hot assignable, so you can change what faders are physically assigned. And then on top of the six physical faders you have, you have what they call virtual faders, which are ones that are controlled in the software system. The entire software stack for the Rodecaster, excuse me, the entire software stack from the Roadcaster 2 is controllable on the LCD that's built into the device. You don't need an external piece of software to do any of the configuration. You can do it all right there on the touch screen or with the associated controls. Each of the four participants that get their own dedicated mic input and their own dedicated headphone output. So what's nice about this is if you've done any sort of broadcasting or podcasting or content creation and you've had more than one person one of the first challenges you come across is most mixers have one headphone out but then you got all these other people and they all want different levels and so you wind up using a headphone splitter which is okay but then you go to adjust the main level and then everybody's headphone went down or you went to adjust it up and then everybody's headphone went, went up or you get somebody that goes I hear too much of Bob and not enough of Frank or I want to hear more of myself or I don't want to hear myself at all. Well the Road. Uh t- 2 Pro fixes all of that because it allows you to choose a matrix for each one of those headphone mixes. So you can tap into the headphone mix and say, uh, you know, Talent Station 1, he wants to hear none of himself, but he wants to hear 2, 3, and 4. Uh, Talent Station 2 wants to hear all four of them, so on and so forth. And you can customize those for each output. Then below the headphones, you have what they call... Uh, sound pads. And so the sound pads are basically buttons that you can load sound onto and play back. So by default, you just play sound into the Rodecaster, choose the button that you want, choose the sound that you want, and then play it in, and it records onto the Soundcaster. Now, there is a way to directly load MP3 or Waves onto the device, and this is the one thing that kind of falls down under Linux. It doesn't actually require any software to load the files onto the device. It just puts it into a USB disk mode, and then there are folders 1 through 8, and you drop the MP3 that you want to play into that folder. And then when you push the button, it plays that MP3 or wave. That part is simple enough. Where it falls down is, for whatever reason, the fine engineers at Rode didn't make a way to expose changing the mode from USB audio mode to storage mode without having a piece of Windows software. So that's the only thing I couldn't find a way to do in Linux. And even then, you don't have to load the files by hand. You could just record them in. So you can still use that feature of the Rodecast. It's just a little bit slicker if you're willing to use the piece of software that comes with it. It works fine in a VM. Uh, I didn't try it under Wine. But again, I, I don't think any of that is necessary. So where this device really stands out to me and where it's better than just an ordinary mixer Ordinary audio interface is in the matrix matrices, I guess, would be the right way to phrase that. And basically what I mean by that is you can assign different mixes to each one of the faders. So, for example, it allows you to pair your phone with Bluetooth with the mixer. If you do that, your phone shows up as a fader source. So you can assign that source to a physical fader. You can assign that source to a virtual fader. Anybody that has dealt with remote guests inside of a studio has dealt with something called Mix Minus, and I've gone over it in previous episodes. You can look back to see if you don't understand what a Mix Minus is, but basically the short version is a Mix Minus is a collection of all of the sources on the mixer minus the source we're sending to. So, for example, if you're connected via a phone, we want to send you all of the other audio on the mixer, but we don't want to send your own audio back to you, lest you have yourself on like a half a second delay, which causes an echo, and it's very frustrating and, and obnoxious. This automatically will generate a mix minus. And so when you can tell the phone like, hey, I want this fader to be a mix minus mix, and then it will automatically add all of the other faders, subtract the phone out, and send that via Bluetooth back to the phone. So you can take phone calls, or you can join via Skype or Mumble or whatever on your phone, and that shows up in the mixer. The audio interface. So this is where Rode really set themselves apart, and I mean really did it well. They have not one, but two audio interfaces built in. So you get two Type-C ports on the back. When you plug that Type-C port into your computer, the first one shows up as a USB audio interface, and they're labeled, you know, audio interface A, audio interface B. So when you go into your fader configuration and say, I want to assign a source to this fader, it gives you the option of choosing, do you want to take the audio from USB audio A or USB audio B? The huge advantage here is you can do one of two things. The first thing you can do is you can have one production PC that's running OBS and has the main mix and all the rest of it. And it works just like any other audio interface would do. You pop the fader up. If it's in the mix, it goes out to the OBS machine, goes out to the stream. The second one, you can plug into a laptop and you can run Zoom or Jitsi or whatever, have your guests join. You set that fader to a mix minus, And now you're able to bring that guest in with one device. You're able to do all of it. It gets better. If you know what you're doing with sound configuration, and basically anybody who has run a Linux PC and can click on the little sound thing, choose the little settings cog, and choose the physical device they're, setting, they're, they're outputting to, you can choose to say, like, go into Mumble and say, hey, Mumble, you are going to function off of USB audio interface B, OBS, you are going to function off of USB interface A, and by doing that, you can actually run a mix to Mumble on the same computer, that you're running OBS that has a mix of everything to include the thing that you had the mix minus of. So I just, I don't have enough good things to say about this little thing. Also, it comes with a tremendous amount of processing that's built into it. And so each one of the microphone inputs has the ability to do gating compression and all the rest of it. Is it as good as the axia? No, it's not The, compre- the compressor doesn't have nearly the same amount of, of control over it. it doesn't go to nearly the same range um, doesn't sound the, doesn't sound the same there, there, there are some definite shortcomings. It is decidedly not a professional product. it's definitely in that prosumer category but it is a game changer. It takes what would cost twenty to $25,000 to build a studio and gets it to you in a package for $800. So this is an absolute must-have if you're a content creator. It is an entire production studio in a box, and it's available for 800 bucks. So I'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. The Rodecaster Pro 2, absolutely fantastic and works flawlessly with Linux. tech voice assistants are struggling. Alexa is Amazon's biggest money loser. Apple Siri is in a myriad of organizational dysfunction and cautiousness. And Google is leaning hard into AI, except its own assistant. And so the open source privacy minded home assistant is really the perfect area for a product to flourish and grow. And this perfect timing comes with a device called the Willow. You can learn more at the the show notes, podcast.asnoashow.com. I'll have a link. Willow is an open source privacy minded home assistant voice assistant that aims to fill the void with a local voice assistant. The big problem here is that Home Assistant doesn't yet offer any hardware that you can just buy and put on your kitchen counter. And so that's where Willow comes in. They're aiming to fill that void by utilizing a specific set of hardware with an ESP32 box, which provides a basic hardware shell around the ESP32 SoC. And once flashed with Willow, it gives you the ability to use a local controlled voice assistant and eventually get access to Home Assistant. So the creator, Christian, I I believe it's Kyle Hoffner, uh, wanted to jumpstart the Home assistance voice ambition by providing ready-to-use hardware. And so he laid out the pitch for designing this entire device. And he has a short little 30-second video, and it really exemplifies quite clearly and succinctly he runs an Amazon Alexa right next to the Willow. And he gives both of them the command to turn on the lights. And you can just see how much faster the Willow is able to. It's not, you know, it's not like light and, night and day, but it's definitely faster. And, of course, it's because it's not sending commands up to the cloud and then responding and then coming back down. It's all happening right there on the device. The thing that stands out to me is they're targeting this $50 price range. And I think that's really, really cool because it's going to open up voice assistants to a lot of people to include people like me who don't really want a huge investment. I Really, I prefer a button if I'm honest with you. I don't really want to talk to anything. I want to push a button. I want something to happen. But there is no question about it that a lot of people have become, I don't want to say addicted, but really accustomed to using their voice to be able to control things. And in some ways, it is a more natural thing. Hey, sweetheart, could you go turn the lights off? Now it's, hey, little box over sitting over there, would you please turn the lights off? And it's able to respond and take action and do those things. And so I can see the benefit and the appeal. I'm interested to get your thoughts, Steve, because you were a huge part of Mycroft. You continue to iterate on Home Assistant. What do you think
0: about Willow? So um, when I was reading through this, I wasn't quite sure. So I follow the uh, the Year of the voice directly from the Home Assistant project. And I also listen to their podcast and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they've talked about this ESP microphone and I couldn't tell whether this was that or not because the ESP microphone that they were talking about is simply a way to capture the the audio and send it back to uh say home assistant blue or whatever that does the actual uh processing. And so I wasn't quite sure whether that's what this is or not where they're or be, mostly because the ESP32 has uh let's say it's not a very strong processor on it and so i i was trying to i was struggling to figure out like is it doing this on the esp32 or is the esp32 uh relaying this for Mm. uh uh bigger hardware like because so on the on the podcast they were talking about at the time they didn't have a name for it Mm -hmm. but they were talking about these esp microphones that you just kind of sprinkle around your house and they would relay the the audio back to wherever you're doing your audio processing. So I'm not exactly sure what Willow is in relation to that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? So you would think with the $50 price tag that, that at least some of the work is being handled elsewhere, right? I mean, it seems like that would be a difficult thing to pack into a $50 price tag.
0: Yeah. So um, especially because like I have I have tons of the ESP devices and they're good little devices, but they're also not they're not meant to be powerhouses. And so um, I would say that I have no idea how the software is written. And I know that the the ESPs are often compiled directly onto the chip as opposed to something like Mycroft. But um, with Mycroft, running on a Raspberry Pi 4, which has arguably, I have no idea how many X times the, the grunt of an ESP chip, mm-hmm. um, there still was some processing overhead, even on a, on a Raspberry Pi 4. So I'm, I would be really astounded if they were able to uh, get the processing directly on the ESP chip, Uh, given the the lack of grunt that it has. But it could be, right? I haven't actually looked into how this works.
1: The ESP32 box is an A.I.O.T. development board based on the ESP32 S3 Wi-Fi plus Bluetooth. The ESP32 box provides a platform for developing the control of home appliances using voice assistant plus a touchscreen controller sensor, infrared controller, and intelligent Wi-Fi gateway. The ESP32 box comes pre-built with firmware that supports voice interaction with the SDK, examples of which you'll be you'll be able to develop a wide variety of AIOT applications based on the ESP3 box, such as online and offline voice assistance, voice enabled devices. So supports far-field interaction with two mics, off voice wake up command, reconfigurable voice commands, flexible GUI framework, end-to-end IoT development. So it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like it's the interface. It doesn't sound like it's actually doing the the processing it, you know, on, on, on the box. But again, I might, I, I might be ignorant here.
0: Yeah. That based on, I I'm making a supposition just simply based on my experience with the ESP chips and the amount of grunt power they have. I would, I would be shocked. So what they did to, um, the home, the home assistant project has been talking about this for a little bit now, because it's the year of the voice. And what they did was they essentially narrowed the scope of what the, uh, hope the voice assistant has to understand. So mm-hmm. Mycroft, we we tried to do like something for everybody so that it didn't matter what you said. It wasn't na- uh, just narrowly focused to your, like your home and objects around the home, but it could be anything that you ask for. And when you expand your model like that, um, it has a lot more margin for error. And so it has to think longer and work through a decision tree Uh, You know, I'm obviously not using the the exact correct term, but it works through a decision tree in order to try and take an accurate guess at what it is that that you're trying to say to it. When you take that and say, you know what, we're only going to say things around the house and we're only going to say things that, that might be related to exactly what's inside of Home Assistant, you're able to drastically reduce the processing time and therefore speed up your your response time, but mm. even still, I would be very surprised if the ESP chip could actually handle that on its own.
1: I'm excited to see this. I'm excited where I see this goes. I think this is going to be really, really approachable for a lot of people, and I think at 50 bucks, there's going to be people like me that say, I don't really care about a voice assistant, but for 50 bucks, may as well give it a shot. The other thing is, because all of this stuff is open design and open source, I'm not worried about some... You know, Yahoo sitting at some Amazon monitoring center, waiting for me to get into an argument with my wife, so they can call in a domestic dispute or whatever, which has absolutely happened to people that have Alexas in their house. So, I I don't know i I, I think this in a, I think it lowers the barrier to entry for people that want to get into this sort of technology, and I think that's exciting, even if I'm not the target market for this.
0: I I definitely would pick some of these up, like yeah, especially because. That's the primary, well, we, our house is, uh, designed to react to you. I don't believe it's home automation. If you actually have to go around directing the house to do things, (laughs) that's not automation, a different interface. However, there, there would be times where that might be useful. Like your hands are full and you say, Hey, whatever your voice assistant, open the garage door, like that could be useful.
1: Mm. Well, we'll keep an eye on it, and if anybody has, I tried to order one when when I was researching for doing show prep, but unfortunately, as far as I can find, they're all out of stock. But if you have one, if you have experience with one, I would love to hear, uh, I would love to hear from you live at asknowashow. And if you don't have one, I'll let you know when uh, I finally get my hands on mine. All right, the ASUS Republic of Gamer. Allies. so for this i'm going to invite uh interaction from the mumble room by the way you can always participate you can hop in the geek lab at geeklab.ninja and run the command pound mumble it'll draw our immediate attention to your comment to your question you can jump into the on air channel and then we'll bring you on i wanted to invite sleuth who does a lot of work uh behind the scenes for the show and and of course it's that that's very appreciated um, but in the pre-show discussion, you had a lot of insight into the ASUS Republic of of Gamers Ally, so I wanted to bring you in to discuss. Welcome in, Sluth.
2: Uh, good evening.
1: So uh, the 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 Ally is essentially the uh, a newer version of the Steam Deck. So ASUS is taking a run at the idea of a portable gaming unit, and so. Of course, the differences right off the bat is the ASUS Ally is running Windows 11, whereas the um, the Steam Deck is running Arch and Linux and running Steam on top of it. Now, both Steve and I have Steam Decks, and I think both of us would tell you that the performance is darn near flawless. I mean, there it it is such an impressive device; it blows. It blows me out of the water every time I go to pick it up and do something with it. I mean, I just don't have enough good things to say about it. So I was pretty skeptical coming into the Asus Republic of of Gamer Ally, and to a degree, I felt like as I read through some of the reviews, I kind of picked it apart a little bit, and I wasn't terribly impressed. And again, I admit I'm a little biased here because it's shipping with Windows 11, and I'm just not totally on board with that. But Sleuth, you said as you've looked into it and have looked at a lot of the people that live, eat, and breathe gaming, the reviews are actually not that bad. Tell me about the Ally.
2: Yeah, so the Ally, like you said, is an up-to-date version of what the Steam Deck would be if it came out today. Uh, it is newer hardware, and they, it seems like they took the Steam Deck, looked at it, and said, all right, what's wrong with the Steam Deck? alright, let's 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 make it be a little smaller, let's make it be a little lighter, let's give it a more up-to-date processor, better display, better speakers, all that. And then, because they're Asus and not Valve, they picked Windows over Linux, which all of us in the Linux crowd, of course, are not big fans of, however... Valve doesn't really seem that they are all that interested to have other people use SteamOS. Uh, It is open source, as far as I'm aware, so they could uh, have taken that and used it, but uh, it doesn't seem like Valve is super open about that.
1: Have you seen anybody getting Linux running on the Ally?
2: Not as of yet. However, I have heard of discussions of getting it on there, and given the fact that it's just a basically a smaller laptop you know in terms of the internals it's an amd ryzen processor and you know your standard assortment of ram and storage i would imagine that it wouldn't be very difficult at all uh perhaps the touchpad and uh, the the joysticks and maybe the touchscreen the touching should work but the the, joystick, the joysticks and so on might be a little bit more difficult to get running
1: Give me the give me your take on on a, on a head to head spec comparison. How does the Ally compare with the Steam
2: Deck? So the Ally has a better screen. It's also high refresh rate. It has better processor, better graphics. So in general, it's going to beat the Steam Deck punch to punch, except for low wattage modes. Uh, for those of whom that don't know, the Steam Deck and other handhelds, generally speaking, have some sort of a uh, in software where you can set the TDP of the chip in a, in a user-friendly manner, uh, in the Steam Deck you can go into the menu and the settings and you can tell it, um, you know, I want you to run at 10 watts, I want you to run at 15 watts, I want you to run it... I think it has 20 watts, don't quote me on that, I might be wrong. Um, so at these different power profiles, it will have different characteristics. And it seems like the Steam Deck beats the Ally at 10 watts. However, at 15 and 20 watts, the Ally will run away with it given the newer chip.
1: So, Steve, I wanted to bring you into this discussion and ask a little bit about planned obsolescence because obviously from from one point, if Asus can make a a technically superior device, that's one thing, but at the same time, Valve has a vested interest in making a, a device with a huge amount of longevity because they're gaining the price or they're getting a percentage every time they're selling a game, whereas Asus only makes money when they sell you the device. How do you think that plays out for planned obsolescence?
0: So I think that you stole a bit of my thunder there. But yeah, I think <clears throat> when when I was reflecting upon this, we were kind of kicking this around before the show. Uh, it started to rub me the wrong way. So first of all, I, I really like the Asus or Asus or however you pronounce their company name. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of their, especially their motherboards and stuff like that. Um, so I have nothing against that. And, and I think competition is good. But having said that, when you have a company like Valve who their primary motivation is to continue to propagate the use of steam. And you've got a company that doesn't have that same business model. That second company is more likely to have an issue where, okay, the device is three years old. We're just going to stop supporting it because we want a a new device, you know, and it may even be warranted. Like we might have some big jump in technology that has happened and, and they feel like it's better for that them as a company and the better experience for their users and so on. But at the end of the day, you end up with a device that the user is going to have to self support. And one of the other things that I thought was of note is the fact that running windows, you are beholden to another company and what they decide to do. And that's part of the reason why valve has, has detached themselves because they had a pretty public, uh, spat over that some years ago, and we kind of understood their point of view on that, which means that, so I, I look at this transition to Windows 11 and the number of computers, good, functional, relatively modern computers that can't run Windows 11, and Windows 10, by the way, has, has just been declared. The end of life of Windows 10 has been marked on the calendar now, and so we've got a huge swath of computers that just are not going to get updates and they can't run the latest version of of windows and Mm -hmm. what do you do with that and that's just computers i don't think that the tiny tiny drop in the bucket that might buy the ally is going to even show up as a blip on microsoft's uh radar which means that should they decide that the uh, the tpm or whatever latest security thing needs to be revved in order to keep the vast number of windows users secure they're going to look at they're not even going to look at this ally and uh, give it any kind of thought. And so that could mean that in three years, because of the way that Windows is progressing, your device either runs slowly or it's it's abandoned in terms of uh, security updates or anything like that. And that that is something that you're not likely to have in Linux land. I mean, for goodness sakes, we ran 32 bit in the kernel We we Pulled that along until what last year? Mm -hmm. So like, I don't even know if it's worth running the power for a 32-bit machine. But we still supported it. So I think there's there's an issue with uh, buying from a company that their only avenue of revenue is getting you to buy something new, and then on top of that, for ...from the company that they've hitched their wagon to, which also requires you to buy the new thing in order for them to actually continue to to make some sort of money off of you.
1: The planned obsolescence thing really resonates with me, in part because I see where you're coming from. Uh, the only pushback I'd have there is, to a degree, I don't think there's a huge, there's going to be a huge effort on Asus's part to do anything like lock the bootloader down or anything like that. So I think you're going to be able to install Linux... On, uh, on the Ally if you want, although there may be some, uh, some question as to what compatibility, if any, the controls will have and how all that's going to work. But at least they're not like actively motivated not to let you run a different operating system. They don't care as long as you're buying the device from them. They don't probably care what you're putting on there. But when you talk about planned obsolescence, and when you talk about a company who's only motivated when they're able to sell you something, my, immediately ju- my mind immediately jumps over to What is going on right now with my kid's school? And they, during COVID, were issued Chromebooks. So kindergarten through third grade was given iPads. Third grade on up was given Chromebooks. And every student has one. And the idea was that they could participate in remote learning. It sounded like a great idea. And it was paid with COVID dollars, all the rest of it. Great. So here we are three years, four years past COVID. And Google announces that they are discontinuing hardware support. And they're not going to push security updates. So we get a notice from the school saying, we're going to throw all these Chromebooks in the garbage. And it sits with me and I think about that for a second and I just become enraged. Here I am looking at this device that functions just fine and they're not asking the device to do any more today than they asked it to do five years ago, four years ago, whatever, when they put it into production. It was a web browser running Google Docs and Calendar and and Gmail then and that's exactly what it's doing today. Exactly what it's doing today. But because Google just decided that they're not going to push updates to it. The only responsible reaction from an organization that bases these things in production is to say they're trash. So now we have an e-waste problem. We have a money problem. We have a technologically slash privacy problem because you're taking all these devices that were given to these students that they used for however many years and now you're throwing them in the trash. And I doubt anybody's going through there and pulling all of the SSDs out and properly wiping them. So you have all of that going on at the same time there is no actual technical reason under the hood to be doing this there's no reason you couldn't run a little version of linux or you couldn't unlock the bootloader install something else and run chrome the reality is nobody is going to bother to do that and so my fear when we start talking about things like the ally is Do we run into the same problem? Do you get to a point where, like you said, windows is just going to make some change sometime and say now to, in order to run windows 12 or 13 or whatever, you need this piece of thing that isn't there. And Oh, by the way, we, we don't support that anymore. And now this thing just becomes a big paperweight on your desk.
0: Yeah. And it's really unfortunate too. Like I understand that gamers are likely to upgrade their, their hardware, or at least more likely than the average consumer. But sure. Honestly, um, I probably will run my Steam Deck right into the ground, like at the point where, at the point where it stops being able to play some of the more intense games. All I'm going to do is I'm going to drop it in a dock and I'm going to use it to stream from my desktop, like, <laughs> or or even like roam yeah. with it. Yeah. There, there's literally no reason that that you can't continue to to use that. And if you're, it just it blows my mind where this idea of Uh, On one side of society, I'm trying not to be too political, but on one side of society, we're getting the like, save the planet, you know, we've got 20 years to live or or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. All related to uh, the human impact on our environment. And then on the other hand, we have just this massive waste, like the the precious metals that are coming out to make these things, like we don't, if we had, uh, say, the ability to, Recycle like seventy-five percent of everything that went into a computer. For instance, it would be a little more excusable because we're not just like digging limited resources out of the ground and then just throwing them back in the ground when we've just arbitrarily decided we're not going to do something with it. So it, mm-hmm. it it's a really, it's a really sensitive subject for me. Um, because I do think that we should be good stewards of the things that we have, our environment, the animals and so on. Like Mm -hmm. that is our responsibility. And we're, we're literally letting laziness uh, override the, the, the thought of like, we should be good stewards of the things that we can be in charge of.
1: Are you trying to tell me they're not making any more planets? Yeah.
0: yeah, Something like that.
1: Sleuth, I I guess I want to bring this conversation back around. So, when you, So I'm, I'm going to say something, and I want you to tell me, agree, disagree, or otherwise. Until there's a company out there that can come to market with a device for $399 or less, that gives equal or better performance to the Steam Deck, Steam Deck is going to reign supreme. Your thoughts?
2: I think largely I agree with that. In, in general, I don't think another platform's going to come... That's going to be the same thing as the Steam Deck. I think we're going to likely see the Steam Deck too before we would ever see another uh, another group like Valve who isn't just motivated by hardware and is motivated by the user experience because that's their actual product, not the necessary not not the hardware that's sitting in front of you. Mm. Uh, I, I don't think we're going to see another thing like that. You know, all the major players that have these game stores already, other than I guess Epic Games, but I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't see them going that way. They seem to be very in the Windows ecosystem.
1: Do you think Asus possesses some, either of you, do you think that Asus possesses some sort of an advantage by being able to say, we can run all the Steam games, you don't need that little silly Proton thing, it's just everything runs off the bat, or do you think it's going to be a function of, listen, at the end of the day when you pick up a Steam Deck, you it's hard to find a game that you can't play because Proton works so well, so in the end it doesn't matter?
2: I think for some people, yes. I think the fact that it runs Windows and it's just plug and play is great. But you, on the other hand, the user experience isn't as polished as on the Steam Deck. So the the less technical users that are just going to buy a console, you know, the, the people that want to do PC gaming and play the PC games, but don't necessarily want to deal with the building or buying or specking of an actual PC, I feel like they're going to go straight to the Steam Deck. Steve, your thoughts?
0: I think that... Um... Largely the the type of consumer that, that they're targeting here. So ultimately, your question is like, well, do you, are you concerned about the latest and greatest Windows games? I, I'm kind of paraphrasing because you could do right. the back catalog too. Um, or are you worried that you're not going to be able to play those things? Most of the people that are picking up a Steam Deck, ev- even people who are really intense gamers, are not going to be going out and playing the AAA game on the Steam Deck, largely because or any other handheld device, I would argue. You might you might get little bits here and there, but the people that are really gonna care about that, that are gonna have a 4000 series NVIDIA card or whatever the AMD equivalent is, they're gonna still play that on the computer. So Ooh, the one. idea that uh, I need to have this massive Windows library that, that doesn't run on Proton, uh, it doesn't ring true to me. I think the vast majority of people are gonna pick this up and just wanna do something they're unlikely to pick it up to play a specific game. Like, I'm not going to buy a Steam Deck to play, I don't know, <clears throat> Star Trek Online mm-hmm. away from my computer. That's unlikely. It's more likely that I want something to play while I'm on the road and it, and it's nice to have my library. And so, okay, there's only 9,000 games out there for the Steam Deck. I, I'm sure that I need the full Windows library in order. to. I, I don't buy that.
1: You're right. Just just hearing you say that rings true to me. Right. So if you're a gamer and you're dedicated to I mean, you're buying a full on gaming PC, the, the handheld really, if you think about it, it's it's the market for people like me, the people who aren't serious gamers who I, I largely see it as child's play. But every once in a while, it's kind of nice just to waste some time or really for me, it's a, in the ability to interact with my kids with what they want to do, which is largely play games all day. So it allows me to have that interaction, but I don't want to have to maintain, I mean, my gosh, I sit down to go play a game and it's like the first hour of my of the time is set up just getting things downloaded and set up. So just having that on a dedicated device has been a game changer to me, no pun intended. That's where I think these portable gaming units really kind of fit in. And if you're looking for the I can play any game in the world, you're right. You're probably purchasing some sort of very special, very dedicated gaming computer, regardless of the operating system you're using to drive it.
0: Or a laptop, right? Like you would probably be mm. picking up a gaming laptop um, if you're worried about doing that on the go. It's just, I think the target the target audience is they probably looked at the the number of hours being played across what the most what the top games are in terms of the that and looked at and said, what is the specs that's required to play that? And they probably targeted that because that makes the most sense from a business perspective. You know, they're not targeting the AAA people because. Yeah, those guys spend a lot of money but what like they're let's say 25% of the people that play on Steam, so why wouldn't I target the 75% that are that are playing this verifiable chunk of game that we can run.
1: Yeah. 855-450, no, it's eight five five four five zero six sixty-four. the email live at AskNoahShow.com. not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the register had an absolutely fantastic article on the perils of unsupported FOSS software in enterprise. And basically the overall thing here is that the, the system market is projected to grow from $6.27 billion in 2022 to $22 billion by 2029. Short version is open source is winning, continues to win, and is projected to continue to win. And so they, they define it as a more than brisk compound annual growth. And I think that's accurate. So the problem here, as they point out, is there's this misconception that open source means cheap or open source means free. And that's particularly confusing and problematic because there are a lot of companies that, yes, they, they, they write software. And yes, that code is available online. And yes, you can download that, load that software without paying for somebody for the code. And you can install it and you can design it. But the problem is you have to maintain that software. You have to manage that software. And a lot of times, companies don't put enough thought into how they're going to do that. And so there are a couple of ways that you can crack that nut, right? So the first thing is you can go with an expert third-party support like Red Hat. And so Red Hat, you can pay them. And they will give you enterprise support on your open source system. And I have plenty of systems that I've paid Red Hat for support. And I will tell you, they deliver more than what you they charge you. They they promise you that they're just going to help you out with the Red Hat system itself. In reality, I have called them multiple times and said, here is the problem I'm up against. And they go, well, gee, I don't know anything about that software. But I do know this and I do know that. And I bet you if you try this, we can get that to work. And then they get on a on a call with me and they help me walk through the problem. So that's one way to solve it. The second option is you can use rely what they're calling community support and so you can try to rely on the community to help manage your infrastructure and the issue that i take with that is a couple of things so first of all i don't you know people's time is valuable so if you're quote-unquote relying on community support i hope you're paying those people or i hope you're giving back to the community in some way to support what they're doing particularly if you're making money off of the work they're doing the other thing that that occurs to me is just in the last five to ten years as I've watched what has changed in the open source world. I so was watching a documentary that was talking about on 9-11 how NORAD and the PEOC and the FAA couldn't communicate with each other because they were all on different conferencing systems. And it, I just, I sat back in my chair and I went, wow, today Opus is built into every web browser. And so things like Jitsi and Zoom and Google Meet and whatever else, it all just works because the stuff that we paid companies thousands and thousands of dollars for is now open source and bundled with every major web browser. We've come a long way. Music in our ears means we're out of time. Catch the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central.